Good morning. How are you today? Good to hear. Nice to see you. Our scripture reading today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 25 through 40. Uh, you can follow along on the screen or in the Bibles in your seats. It's on page 898. Now, concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, excuse me, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who, have, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried woman or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Once again, Lord, this is a, a complicated text and a, a winding text in many respects. It can be challenging for us to follow. And it makes sense for some of us, Lord, we've been in some challenging texts, good but hard, for the last several weeks. And I'm, I wouldn't be shocked if some of us are even fatigued this morning. We've been wrestling with things and asking questions, Lord. So would you once again 
by the power of your Holy Spirit, give us what we need to not only endure this text and this message, but really benefit from it and to be changed by it. We love you, Lord, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I thought about calling this sermon Apocalypse Now, but I didn't because unfortunately that title has already been taken and I'm not Martin Sheen. I thought about it in part because we're all very captivated by the idea of said apocalypse, as has been the case across human history in pretty much all places and times. We're captivated by it, and yet, right now, it's hard to tell if we're hoping to avoid it or if at this point we're kind of fine with it. Contemporary films and shows deal with the subject all the time. For example, The Last of Us, A Quiet Place, Interstellar, kind of, all of the zombie stuff, Armageddon, you get the point. They deal with this subject, and most of them are rather dystopian. They are decidedly anti-apocalypse and sometimes even about preventing it. But on the other hand, there's a lot of very dark humor these days about how tired we all are and bewildered by the state of the world and therefore not nearly as bothered by the end of all things as we used to be. We're borderline sarcastic about it and honestly isn't the greatest mindset, but it is what it is. However, beyond all of that, beyond our fascination with the apocalypse, an apocalyptic title would have been appropriate this morning because our passage is a bit apocalyptic. We're talking about the end and what that means for our relationships in particular. Marriage and singleness will once again be the focus, the part two that I promised you two Sundays ago, but the application will be making applies well beyond our marital status and affects the way that we think about and do pretty much everything. This is all very intriguing, isn't it? I mean, my goodness, marriage, singleness, the apocalypse. Hold on to your hats. You're not going to believe this, but in just a few weeks, we're going to have a sermon about hats. I'm not kidding. Circle April 14th on your calendars and bring your hat. Or don't. Pre-read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, <laughs> and you be the judge. I did mention uh, earlier in my prayer, this is a bit of a winding text, as you can see, so the sermon will be a little bit more winding than normal, but I think you can do it. I also promised two Sundays ago we'd spend a little bit of time on uh, divorce and remarriage, which is a very heavy and sometimes gray subject. We just don't have enough time this morning to do it, so I'm going to do some work online, some resources I'm going to post this week. I'll do it that way. It's coming. A warning and then a goal this morning as we navigate this text. A warning and then a goal. The warning, time is short, and then we're going to talk very briefly about the goal, undivided devotion. The warning, time is short, and we'll spend most of our time there. And then secondly, the goal, undivided devotion. So first, the warning. Time is short. In verse 25, really into the middle of verse 28, Paul restates the theme that we already addressed two Sundays ago in the first part of chapter 7. I wonder if you remember it. Corinthian believers, there's a lot of goodness to be found in staying where you are. For example, verse 7, marriage and singleness are both 
gifts in their own respects, even when they're difficult. So, verse 24, which we talked about last week, regardless of your status, remain there contently with God. We made the point that it's a mistake to pursue marriage because we don't think there's any goodness to be found in singleness. And it's a mistake to pursue singleness because we don't think there's any goodness to be found in marriage. Pursuing either, or really pursuing anything, when the soil of our lives is seeded with discontentment, is a recipe for disappointment and honestly selfishness, both of which end up harming ourselves and other people. Paul returns to these themes here in our passage this morning, but notice in verse 26, that Paul adds some mysterious urgency to his restated exhortations that everything he is saying should be understood in view of the present distress, which we'll come back to in a moment. That's very useful language for parents, by the way. It's vague yet very compelling in view of the present distress. We're all going to go to bed. Why, Dad? In view of the present distress. Once again, is Paul prohibiting all circumstantial changes affecting marital status, economic circumstances, you name it, as if somehow you're automatically failing to trust God if you switch things up? No. And we see this sentiment from earlier in chapter 7, repeated in verses 27 and 28. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife, but if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. However, Paul is warning us this morning against becoming excessively caught up with our circumstances or our longings, marital or otherwise. Look at verse 29, continuing through verse 31. This is what I mean, brothers. Don't you wish every biblical passage had summary language like this? All right, all right. This is what I mean. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. If you're a psychologist or a, a marriage counselor, you might have passed out hearing that passage. Ignore your spouse. Suppress your emotions. When we're reading the Bible, it's often the case that the key to understanding difficult or enigmatic texts like these is remembering the story, the big picture, biblical narrative, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, four chapters. And as it turns out, Paul builds three allusions to this story directly into his argument. Did you catch them? Verse 26, in view of the present distress. Verse 29, this is what I mean, brothers, the appointed time has grown very short. 
Verse 31, for the present form of this world is passing away. What present distress? What appointed time? On one hand, Jesus' return, having mainly to do with the restoration chapter, the last part of the story, on one hand, Jesus' return was coming soon in the sense that the events leading up to his second coming were set in motion by his first coming, the incarnation, as well as his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. We've come up over the apex of the roller coaster, and now we are speeding along downhill. It was true for the Corinthians, remains true for us today, even though no one knows the hour of Christ's return, and Jesus made it clear that it's a decidedly unwise use of time trying to figure it out. On the other hand, it would appear as though some difficulties were taking place in or around Corinth that caused the Corinthians to wonder if Christ's second coming was particularly imminent. Some have speculated that the primary difficulty may have been a famine. Others have mentioned an increase in persecution. It's very difficult to know for sure, but we do know, and they knew that Jesus predicted that things would start to get more chaotic before his second coming. And so you can understand the Corinthians asking themselves, I wonder if it's getting close. And so, to parrot some lyrics from Tim McGraw, <laughs> Paul is saying that it made a lot of sense for the Corinthian believers to live like they were dying. Either they were going to physically die, but then be gloriously raised back to life at Christ's return and given restored resurrection bodies. We're going to talk more about that when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Or if Christ's return was as imminent as some were perhaps thinking, the present form of the world would indeed pass away in their lifetimes, consummating the full splendor of the new heaven and earth, which in truth is renewed Restored earth, the Garden of Eden 2.0, see Revelation chapters 21 and 22, not a celestial lazy river in the clouds where we're eternally floating along together in golden inner tubes and singing praise songs from the 90s. One of the major reasons, and I'm completely serious about this, why not a lot of us think much about heaven and eagerly desire the Lord's return 2 Peter 3.12, is that we absolutely have the wrong conception of it. Church, we are embodied people created by God to work and to play and to enjoy each other's company and most importantly, to enjoy God himself. All of which will continue for the people of God in the afterlife. Just without all of the pain and the suffering that we deal with today. Did you know that? Do you believe that? But when we do recall this story, when we remember where things are going, it casts everything in the present in a brand new light. And then we end up holding on far more loosely even to important things. 
more leastly to our marriages, verse 29, let those who have wives live as though they have none. More loosely to our possessions and to our jobs, verses 30 and 31, let those who buy live as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. More loosely to our emotions, mourning and rejoicing, which remain very important rhythms and realities in the Christian life, but they're not ultimate either, and they don't control us or define us. And we hold such things loosely, and this is really, really important, not for the sake of being ascetics, putting on a a holier-than-thou religious show, but for the sake of holding so tightly onto Christ. I mean, if Christ himself is the future prize, it makes sense to start holding on to him even now, right? To prioritize him far beyond all other people and things. In case you're concerned about this business of holding loosely onto important things, this is by no means the equivalent of being apathetic about them. To quote C.S. Lewis, which feels quite a bit better than parroting Tim McGraw, doesn't it? Because some of you don't even like country music. You weren't even born when that song came out. (laughs) Quote C.S. Lewis, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought the most of the next. Doing the most, not just meaning Christian ministry in a formal sense, but also, I would argue, doing the most to love their spouses and their friends because the thought of really seeing Christ one day, what's often called the beatific vision, it draws us away from what we might call self-vision, from excessive self-focus, which releases us to care more sacrificially for others and to work at our jobs with integrity and to use our possessions generously, etc., etc. For example, when I officiate weddings, I usually say something like, it doesn't sound very romantic, but this is what I say, and it's true. The way to love your spouse the best is to love Christ the most. And we can make so, so many more applications beyond this, holding loosely onto earthly relationships that helps us make space for more people rather than becoming cliquish or possessive of other people. It makes space for married couples to maintain or build genuine friendships with other people, not just with other married people, but with other single people. It makes space for single people to develop an expanding network of friends, rather than putting a couple of close friends on lockdown, and then that's the end of it. And since we're on the subject, and I'm really passionate about it, I am convinced, I'm totally convinced, that age, stage, and marital status siloing in the family of God is one of the greatest losses of our day. Something that's partly a product of our individualism and our ethics of, you just need to do what's best for you. Do that, and you end up leading an awfully homogenous life. Certainly we need some friendships with some people on our same age and stage, but generally speaking, multi-generational, multi-marital status fellowship, multi-everything fellowship should be normative and the household of God. Holding loosely onto earthly relationships also gives the Lord space to revise our relationship plans entirely if he sees fit. 
perhaps guiding some of us toward lifelong singleness, even though it previously wasn't on our radar at all. Perhaps as the story really starts to sink in, that the present form of this world is passing away, Paul's guidance in verse 32 and verse 34 resonates with some of us more acutely. Guidance that the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, and the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. Hopefully this goes without saying, but such guidance is never licensed to end a marriage. We already talked about this earlier in chapter 7, and you can see the same idea at the beginning of verse 39. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, and vice versa. We talked about a couple of exceptions to that earlier. I won't get back into them this morning. And I really doubt, I really doubt that many people should hear this kind of guidance and break off an engagement. Never say never, but I'd imagine most engaged couples are on the right track and should continue along with their plans. I would also love to avoid being stuffed into a trash can later this week because your fiancé called things off this afternoon because God told them to. <laughs> but when we hold earthly things loosely, certainly the Lord will revise some of our relational plans, including, in Paul's day, the plans of betrothed people. The matter of betrothal, mentioned several times in this text, and actually, see verse 25, the specific occasion for the guidance Paul gives in this passage is a somewhat unfamiliar category in our day. It was kind of like engagement, but more general, along the lines of when the time is right and when I get things together economically, etc. You are the woman I plan to marry. At the time, you can see this reflected in the text, the man had the agency in establishing a betrothal with the woman and her family. And so, aware that he was sailing against some very strong cultural headwinds that pushed and basically assumed marriage for all kinds of social and economic reasons, Paul made it clear that staying single, even if betrothed, was not only a fine option, it was a great option. If a betrothed person became a Christian, or maybe just grew a lot spiritually, and decided, you know what, I know I'm betrothed, but I might actually like to remain single in order to pursue something spiritually that wouldn't be as viable if I was married, go for it. Thus, verses 36 through 38, if anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, but to marry, it is no sin. On the other hand, whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Count the costs of pursuing singleness, celibacy being one of them. So this plan may not be the wisest if you have strong passions, verse 36, to be married and to be sexually active. But if you are mindful of these costs and your sexual desires are sufficiently in check, and this is the best way to understand the phrase, 
under no necessity in verse 37, which is very difficult to properly translate in English. If those things are true, then maybe remain single. Or if you're a widow, verses 39 and 40, although you certainly can remarry in the Lord, that is, marry a fellow believer, if you'd like to remarry, you're also quite free to remain a widow, which in my judgment would make you even happier than getting remarried. And by the way, if widows should be marrying believers, then so should all Jesus followers, which squares with what we talked about in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 a couple of years ago. It's really important to understand that the force of these arguments, it wasn't intended to restrain anybody's choices, verse 35, or to create a spiritual pecking order among single and married people as if single people are, are spiritual marines and everyone else is less than. But Paul most certainly wanted to dignify singleness and celibacy, neither of which was thought of very highly in Corinth. And you know, I'm not sure that this singleness-celibacy tandem is thought of so highly in our day either. Singleness itself is more normative today than in first century Corinth, but statistically it's not often paired with celibacy. And tragically, singleness is not always thought of so highly in the Church of Jesus Christ. It's really easy to talk about how much we value singleness and single people, but our actions can communicate something quite different, perhaps unintentionally as a byproduct of zealously loving and supporting families, which is, of course, very important in its own right, perhaps because we just don't know how to celebrate and to honor singleness, or perhaps it's because we're foggy about the story that we were just talking about. Maybe we're forgetting that when Christ returns, the church of Jesus Christ will be presented to Christ as his bride, lavishly adorned, all of us in a sense, married to Christ. And did you know, and these are Jesus' own words from Matthew chapter 22, that in the resurrection will neither marry nor be given in marriage. So there's a real sense in which in the afterlife, in the new heaven and earth, Married people will be more single than they used to be, and single people will be more married than they used to be. Which means that regardless of our marital status now, every last follower of Jesus is on their way to being single and yet married at the same time. And I'm not sure you can really know and believe this and still treat single people like second-class citizens which has been the experience of some of our single brothers and sisters in the contemporary Western church. Sometimes a totally searing source of pain that catalyzes disengagement from church community. Married people, please invite single people into your lives in meaningful ways. And invest in them spiritually, physically, emotionally. Weep with those who are wrestling with unwanted singleness. Pastors, please preach and teach and strategize as if single people are part of your congregation. And dignify their gift 
the assignment that God has given them by putting them into significant positions of leadership within the church, while at the same time avoiding the tired trope that single people can be loaded up to the max with extra responsibilities because they have extra time. Single people, for our purposes, including those who are widows, widowers, divorced, although I understand that some who fit those descriptions don't prefer the term single, invite married people into your life in meaningful ways and invest in them. Speak truth and grace into their lives, even into their marriages. Invest in their kids if they have them. Married and single people, at all times, keep the penultimate nature of earthly marriage in view. When married people forget this, I think Tim Keller talks about this in The Meaning of Marriage. When married people forget this, they put far too much pressure on their marriages. When single people forget this, they put far too much pressure on their dream of marriage. And always remember that you can be selfishly married or selfishly single, even though both statuses are opportunities in different ways to serve other people. One more thing before we move on very briefly to our second reflection, that goal that I told you about earlier. Church, can we please not assume marriage, that everyone is on their way to getting married as a matter of course? This past week, as I was thinking and praying about this passage, it occurred to me that the gospel of Jesus Christ, Christ crucified, that he might die for our sins, it's so magnificent and beautiful, possessing such breathtaking implications for ourselves and for others, that some people will surely conclude, I want to avoid the anxieties of married life in order to invest myself more intensively in light of these implications, maybe through formal ministry, maybe not. Some people, not everyone, not even most, but surely some people will draw this conclusion. So if we never hear of this happening, either A, we are missing something concerning the wonder of the gospel, or B, as the church of Jesus Christ, we've cast marriage into this end-all, be-all kind of light that makes it totally implausible for people to seriously consider singleness. Or perhaps we've done both. Maybe people might like to pursue singleness, but they don't feel like the church, which should dignify them more than anybody else in the world, is the right community for them to do so. Second reflection, that goal we talked about earlier. Undivided devotion. We talked about the warning, that time is short. We talked about the story and where things are going. And now secondly, the goal, undivided devotion. Look again at verses 32 through 35. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, 
but to promote good order and, get this church, to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. There is a real sense in which this passage, and really the whole chapter, it's not about marriage or singleness, but about undivided devotion to the Lord. That's Paul's heart. Why? That the joy of the Lord might be our strength. Nehemiah 8.10 And that it might be our strength in uncertain times, like the times the Corinthians were experiencing, in like the times we're experiencing right now, that the joy of the Lord might be our strength as we get closer and closer to the end. And did you know that this is also our heart here at City Church? Past few weeks we've been making our way through some very difficult passages. And a few times I said something like, you know, even though we're saying some hard and uncomfortable things, we're not here to finger wag or to scold. And all of that is true. But this week occurred to me, (laughs) have we been clear enough about why we are here? We've talked about what we're not doing. Have we talked enough about what we are doing? So here you have it. We are here for the sake of your joy. We are here that you might really know Christ, not just know things about Christ, and be so profoundly devoted to Him accordingly that you can live contently regardless of your assignment in this life and experience true joy. That's why we're here. We're here for those of us who are already walking with Jesus but desire to grow. And we're here for those who are seeking but aren't walking with Christ, that we might expound the excellencies of Christ for the sake of repentance and belief and joy. You know, so many of us are walking around just bewildered right now, confused, discouraged. A couple of days ago, I was out running in the woods near my house. It was a very strange experience. I was thinking about other things, and I wasn't really thinking about the trail, and then I kind of came back to myself and realized I didn't know where I was on the trail. That had never happened to me. Trails just start looking the same after a while as you run and you run, and and there's a quick moment like, where am I? And it was a little excessive as far as the internal panic because, like, I was near my house, right? I mean, so worst-case scenario, (laughs) I could go out to 8th Avenue or 16th Avenue and things would be completely fine. But I had this moment of anxiety. Like, I I don't know where I am. It was one of those weeks where I was really in tune with my human frailty. We had our first baseball practice of the season, and one of the little kids came up to me, and he, like, touched my stomach. He's like, he he didn't say that I was, but he's like, are you fat? So what I'm trying to say is, this week you had a potentially fat guy (laughs) running around lost in the woods in his own backyard. But a lot of us are really, really, really disoriented right now. Even followers of Jesus. We don't know what's going on. Things that we thought were true and, and certain have been flipped on their head in the past few years. And I want you to know it, that, that City Church is a place for you. If you are bewildered, I hope that you will stay here and land here. And let's pursue Christ 
our true north together, that we might really know him and have totally undivided devotion to him for the sake of our joy. And this is really good timing that we would talk about this because, you know, this is what Lent is for. A lot of us get really swept up with Lent as an opportunity to go without. But when we think about it, this, this season that leads up to Easter that we, we began with Ash Wednesday, just this past Wednesday, the season is really, really, really about undivided devotion unto the Lord on gaining more that is Christ himself. And so it's a season for very bewildered people. It's not so much about not doing things, but about devoting ourselves to the Lord. God's not so much looking to, to burden us with abstention, but to draw us closer to himself. That was Paul's heart. That's our heart. That's God's heart for you. And so my prayer, as I was thinking about our passage this week, is married, single, divorced, widowed, that Lent would be a season in which whatever is distracting us from seeing and savoring Christ, that the Lord would point those things out and that maybe we would lay some of those things aside, not so much for the sake of laying them aside, but for the sake of holding more tightly onto Christ. I hope that you will think about that this week. I hope that you will encourage each other that you ask one another questions and pursue this together as the people of God. Amen.